Welcome to the Sunday School lesson from Jolton Church of the Nazarene. My name is John Mills, and I'm glad you could be with us today. We are continuing our look at uh, the, using the Nazarene Quarterly, and actually we are changing things this Sunday. Uh, we have been looking at Ezra and Nehemiah, and now we're beginning a new study of the Psalms. And so our lesson today is the lesson from the Quarterly, for July 19th, and the title is The Fruit of Righteous Living. Our text comes from Psalm 1, which we're going to look at in just a minute. But before we start, let's begin with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this day that you've given us. We thank you for the opportunity to come together to study your word and to learn from you. And we do ask that you would teach us and, and help us to understand as we look at this scripture in your name. Amen. As we said, our text today is Psalm 1, and the lesson, The Fruit of Righteous Living. The theme of the lesson is very simple and straightforward. Those who follow righteousness, those who avoid wickedness, are blessed. Those who follow wicked ways will reap the consequences. And so, when we look at this, we're reminded of fairy tales. I don't know if you like fairy tales or not, but almost every fairy tale ends with the words, happily ever after. And when we read this, we recognize it's a universal human desire to be happy, to live happily ever after. Psalm 1 shows us the way to happiness to actually being able to live happily ever after. So, we're going to begin by reading the psalm. It's a short one of just six verses. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on His law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction." We can see that this psalm begins with blessed. Blessed is the one. And this can be translated as, Oh, the happiness of the one. The happiness of the one who does not walk in step with the wicked. And so, as we look at this uh, psalm, we see several important points that it makes. First of all, it describes to us the way of the righteous. It begins with uh, verses, verse 1, what the righteous person avoids. The righteous person avoids walking in step with the wicked, standing in the way that sinners take, or sitting in the company of mockers. But then the psalm goes on to tell us what the righteous person embraces. The righteous person takes delight in the law of the Lord. The righteous person meditates day and night in the law. And then we see the promises, the result of the righteous life. It promises us spiritual health and fruitfulness. And then it promises prosperity. 
The psalmist then goes on to contrast the righteous with the wicked. Unlike the righteous, the wicked, it says, are like chaff. First, they are of no value. It's worthless. And then the wicked are like chaff in that they are temporary. They are impermanent. Uh, the benefits of wickedness will fade away. And then the last verse tells us why this is true. The Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. So as we look at this psalm, we want to begin by looking at the way of the righteous. So verse 1 tells us what the righteous person avoids. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers. So we can see from this three things that the, the righteous person avoids. First, the righteous person avoids walking in step with the wicked. The idea here is the righteous person doesn't adapt the morals of the wicked. They don't adapt the values of the culture that surrounds them. They don't live their life based on worldly wisdom. Instead, they allow God's Word to shape what they see as right and wrong. The Israelites were surrounded by a pagan culture, by pagan gods and idols, and there was a constant attraction to, to worship uh, similar to the nations around them. Usually, Israel was a small nation that was surrounded by empires. They had the Egyptians to the south. They had the Assyrians and later the Babylonians to the north and west, uh, east, sorry. These cultures were seen as superior or advanced uh, because of their wealth, because of their military strength, their power. So there was a constant temptation for the Israelites to adopt the gods of these empires around them, to adopt these worldviews. And we can see the same thing today. Many Christians see themselves surrounded by a culture with very different values, attitudes, and morals. And sometimes the culture around us can be seen as superior. The, the world is seen as more prosperous, more sophisticated, or advanced. And so there can be a constant temptation to those in the church to adopt the values, the morals, of the culture that surrounds them even if these values clash with Scripture. I think we would find many in the church have adopted these values, whether they realize it or not. In a study by Barna, he found only 17% of practicing Christians. Now, these are Christians who attend church regularly, who say that their faith is important to them, but only 17% hold a predominantly biblical uh, perspective. They believe things such as absolute truth exist, that the Bible is totally accurate in the principles that it teaches, that Satan is real rather than just a symbol, that a person can't earn their way into heaven, and other things like these. And so we can see these are people in the church, but they've adopted the values and the mindset of the culture around them. It's very interesting to me that scientists have found out what we see is not determined by our eyes, but by our brains. 
So we don't see based on the information that comes into the eyes. What we see is when something, when our brain tells us uh, what we see. Uh, we see when our brain interprets that information. So our brain literally tells us what we see. And our brains can be very selective. We ignore some things. We emphasize others. So sometimes you see things with your eyes, but your brain is blind to them. A good example of this is your blind spot. Your eye sees because light hits the retina. And the retina contains rods and cones, and these respond to the light, and they send a signal to the brain. And the signal, the brain then interprets that signal uh, as what you are seeing. However, you have a blind spot because in your retina, there is a spot without any rods or cones. This is where the optic nerve attaches. So there's a blank spot that physically cannot uh, receive light rays. So the question is, why don't you have a blank spot in your field of vision? Well, you don't have a blank spot because your brain fills that in with what it expects to find. And so you are not literally seeing what the eye sees. You are seeing what your brain sees. Now, this is important not just to people who happen to like biology, but what is true of our physical vision is also true of our spiritual and our mental vision. What we see and perceive to be reality is not what really exists, but it's what we believe to be true. Reality is determined by what we think, or our view of reality is determined by what we think, and not by what is actually there. Anais Nien wrote, We don't see things as they are, we see them as we are. In other words, we don't see reality. We see what we believe to be true. When we accept the mindset of our culture, the moral views, it determines how we live because our beliefs shape the options that we consider when we make choices in how we will behave. You know, we have a, a common picture of going through our day with a devil on one shoulder and an angel on the other. And as we go through the day, we make choices. and We decide, are we going to do the right thing or not? But for those without a biblical worldview, they don't even know the right thing. To them, it's not a choice between the biblical and the unbiblical. Their mind only considers non-biblical options. The biblical choice doesn't even occur to them because their worldview determines what they see. When we don't have a biblical worldview, it doesn't even enter our minds uh, to choose to respond in the way that God wants us to. Our mind is shaped by our culture's view of what is rational. It comes up only with behaviors that fit that worldview. And many times these don't include the righteous response that God wants from us. Too often, this is true of Christians as well. They've adopted the morals, the values of our culture, and so the biblical response never occurs to them. For example, what do you think most Christians would do if they inherited a large sum of money? Well, the biblical perspective is this money, with everything else that we have, 
does not belong to us. It actually belongs to God. Now, our culture tells us this is our money. And as long as we are not doing anything illegal with it, we can do with it what we want. So when we sit down to think of how we're going to use this money, most Christians would not take into account the biblical perspective. They might pay their tithes, and that probably is unlikely. But then they would go on to consider their other options. Invest the money for retirement, buy the boat that they want, take a vacation. But the idea that this money is not theirs, this money is God's, and they should seek God's input on what to do with it, this idea doesn't even occur to them because their worldview doesn't allow it to exist. This is their money. Of course, they have the right to determine what they want to do with it. You know, I've read accounts of, of teenagers who are in rebellion against their parents. And no matter what their parents do, the child defines them. So, for example, the parent sends the child to his room. The child then sneaks out the window. When I would read something like this, it would amaze me because it's something I never did when I was growing up. And not because I never disobeyed and was punished. I received my share of punishments, that was sure. But when I was punished, I never considered whether to comply with the punishment or to defy my father. It wasn't that I thought through my choices and decided, well, complying would be better off. No, it just never entered my mind that there was an option of defying my father. My mind would not let me consider that. And so we have to understand when our mindset, when our values are shaped by the culture around us, many times the biblical option does not even occur to us as a possibility. And so the psalmist tells us the righteous man is blessed when he does not walk in step with the wicked, when he doesn't allow himself to have the mindset of the wicked. Now, the righteous person is also blessed because he doesn't stand in the way that sinners take. The righteous not only avoid thinking like the wicked, they avoid the lifestyles, the behaviors of the wicked. They don't engage in these types of behavior. And so the warning here is don't uh, adopt the practices of the wicked. So you can see the progression. We've gone from accepting the morals, the mindset of the wicked, to now joining in their behavior. This would be the logical next step. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German theologian, and he was actually put in prison camps during World War II and before the war was over, he was actually executed by hanging. The Nazis executed him because of his opposition uh, to the Nazi regime. But he wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. And in that, he writes, Cheap grace is the deadly enemy of our church. And what he means by cheap grace is grace as just a doctrine or a principle. Grace that it calls for the justification of the sin, but without justification of the sinner. Grace where the sinner is forgiven, but continues on in their sin. So cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without Christ himself. And it's the enemy of the church because it takes sin lightly. And when we take sin lightly, we also take salvation lightly. 
And so when we look at our world, at our church, we see people who are living in the same sins of the world. Study after study show us this, that there's very little difference in the actual behavior of those who go to church, claim to be Christians, and those who are not in church. But this is not to be the case. 1 John 1, 5 and 6 says, This is the message we have heard from Him and declare to you. God is light. In Him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not the truth. So what we do is important. Paul's message tells us we are saved by grace. This is one of the major themes that Paul hits over and over. But Paul emphasizes grace is not a license to live however we want to. In Romans 6 verses 1 and 2, Paul writes, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? So the idea that my sin actually glorifies God, the idea that when I am a greater sinner, then God's grace is emphasized as he forgives my sins. Paul says this is nonsense. When you were justified by Christ's blood, you died to sin. If you are dead to sin, then you can't go on sinning. So if you're sinning, then you are not alive to Christ. And so it's impossible to be dead to sin, to be alive in Christ at the same time. Now, when we take sin lightly, it has consequences, deadly consequences. You know, sin is dangerous because it corrupts and destroys. And so many of us in the church, we find ourselves in this situation. Because we don't take sin seriously, we accept it as part of our lives we end up embracing our own destruction. Now, the psalmist also tells us that the righteous person is one who does not walk in step with the wicked, one who does not stand in the way that sinners take, and then he says, does not sit in the company of mockers. The righteous don't join in with those who have rejected God, with those who actively scorn God and those obedient to God. You know, these mockers not only sin, they glory in their sin. They scorn those who promote righteousness. And so we can see the depravity of sin by the, the ongoing progression here. We begin with agreeing with the wicked, and then we move on to behaving like the wicked. And then finally, we are joining with the wicked and opposing the righteous. Scripture takes an extremely hard line against mockers and scoffers. It shows us how seriously God takes this. Psalm 24, 9 says, The devising of folly is sin, and the scoffer is an abomination to mankind. That word abomination is a strong word. Abomination is defined as something that causes disgust or hatred, what is exceptionally loathsome or vile. And so we get an idea of how seriously God takes this idea of mocking. And it's because the mocker shows contempt or disdain for God himself. It's blasphemous. They elevate themselves above God. It shows us really the height of arrogance. It's the original sin, the downfall of Lucifer himself. 
to elevate himself above God and to scorn God as lesser. Now, the scorner, the mocker, also causes great harm to the church. They create strife and conflict. Proverbs 22.10 says, Drive out the mocker, and out goes strife. Quarrels and insults are ended. The condition of, of mocking and scorning is so dangerous because the mocker is unteachable. They hold all other views in contempt. Nobody can tell them anything that they will accept. Now, it can be easy for us today in the world we live in to accept this attitude of mocking and scorning. It's become so much of the culture around us. It's so prevalent as we look at, you know, social networking sites such as Facebook and Twitter and some of these. Uh, it's a part of our popular entertainment. Uh, Joyce Behar, who is one of the hosts of a, a TV talk show called The View, they were doing a segment on, on Mike Pence. And in this segment, they were commenting on the fact that Mike Pence had said that he hears the voice of God. And Joyce Behar made the comment, uh, it's one thing to talk to Jesus. It's another thing when Jesus talks to you. That's called mental illness. And the audience clapped and laughed along with her. So we see this mockery, really, of things that Christians hold as important, as sacred. And so we can begin to be cynical and scorning ourselves. Now, from this Psalm 1, uh, Psalm 1, we not only see what the righteous person is to avoid, but in verse 2, we see what the righteous person is to embrace. Verse 2 says, But whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. So we can see the righteous delight in the law of the Lord. To delight is to incline toward, to see the value or the importance of, to find pleasure in. So to delight in God's law is more than just accepting his law. It's more than just being willing to obey to delight is energetically embracing God's law. To delight in the law means we are shouting to the world the wonders of God's law. Now, we can see delight in how the psalmist describes God's law. Psalm 19.10, as the psalmist describes God's decrees, he writes, They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. There's a tradition, uh, an old tradition among Jewish children, that when the child first begins to study God's law, they sit on the rabbi's lap, and the rabbi actually writes in honey on a slate and has the child to lick the honey off. And the idea is there needs to be a connection between the sweetness of the honey and the sweetness of learning the law of God. Now, in our modern culture today, we've done away with the honey. But it's often a tradition that when a child, a Jewish child, first begins to study the law, they are given money instead. But it's the idea that the law is something valuable. It's to be delighted in. And that is because God's law reveals sin to us. Psalm 19, 11, and 12 says, By them, meaning by the, the law, is your servant warned? In keeping them, there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? 
We cannot find out our errors on our own. We need God's Word to teach these things to us. Nevada Barr is a mystery writer, and she's also a Christian. She wrote a book called Seeking Enlightenment Hat by Hat, and she wrote about a number of Christian themes, but she writes about the idea of sin. And she talks that before she was a Christian, she viewed sin as simply uh, simply rules designed by officials in the church, rules designed to control the rest of the world. As she describes it, a handy way to keep the flock tithing and off balance. Her view was whether you sinned or not, it really had no significance in the real world. Now, There were certain sins that she could see the sense of making into laws, you know, not killing, not stealing, those kind of things. But she writes that for most sins, she thought of them as petty rules, and she didn't realize that sin had consequences, that when we sin, we open ourselves up to all kinds of bad results, that by avoiding sin, we protect ourselves from harm. And she writes, because she did not live by biblical rules, she writes, I found myself without spiritual shelter or protection, with no way of avoiding the pitfalls. And so I sinned and I sinned, and I wondered why my life wasn't working out all that well. So Scripture is given to us to reveal sin to us, to give us a warning. Uh, The Hebrew word for the commands that God gave Moses is Torah. And we usually interpret the Hebrew word Torah as law, the law of Moses. But really, the idea is more instruction or teaching. And so when we think of it in this way, it gives us more of the true intent that God had when he gave us the Torah, the law. It's not to confine us. The law is not a fence to keep us in, but the law is a railing. It's to protect us, you know, to keep us from falling off the cliff. So this is the mercy of God that he's provided us with a guidebook for life. He's provided us with this set of teachings to say, this is what you need to live, to grow healthy, to be strong. These are the things you do. These are the things that you avoid. Now, the psalmist tells us uh, that the delight of the righteous person is in the law of the Lord. But then he goes on to say, the righteous person meditates on his law day and night. The Hebrew word for meditate is also used in Isaiah 31.4. And it's used to describe a young lion who is growling over his prey. Uh, In your mind, you can picture you know, a, a lion with a, a great slab of bone and meat in his mouth. And he's just kind of chewing and gnawing on that, on that big old bone. And so to meditate is to, to speak, to remember, to muse on. Uh, it can be similar to a cow chewing its cud. Now, the law contained rules, but it wasn't just about rules. The law was designed to teach principles principles that were to govern our behavior and our actions. This was the big failing of the Pharisees. They could see the law only as a series of rules. Jesus wanted them instead to see the principles that lie behind the law. 
And that's why it's so important for us as righteous people to meditate on the law, to discern these principles. You know, many times we've accepted these principles with our heads. We pay lip service to them. We say that we believe them, but we really haven't accepted them as true. We don't really believe they're true because we don't put them into action. You know, we see things such as it's more blessed to give than receive. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. The meek shall inherit the earth. And we say, oh, oh, yes, I believe those things. But when you look at how most Christians live, it's obvious they don't really believe them because their actions point to something very different. We don't value giving. We value accumulating and getting. We don't see the value in meekness. Instead, we promote ourselves and our own interests interest constantly. You know, Scripture says, don't store up treasures on earth. But that's exactly what we spend our lives doing. So we need to meditate to make these principles not just something that we understand with our head, but something that we really grasp in our heart. And there can be a lot of different ways to meditate, but it goes far beyond just reading God's Word. You know, you can read it out loud. You can listen to it being spoken. You can write the verses down. You can paraphrase the verse, putting it into your own words. Uh, You can use repetition over and over, using different translations. You know, all of this are ways to meditate on God's Word. We can personalize Scripture, you know, put our names into it. And so, as we look at this, we realize there are a lot of different strategies that we can use for meditation. But the key to meditation is spending time at it. You cannot take shortcuts. Meditation is not something that you can do quickly. Now, as Americans, we like to be be efficient. We want to do things in the shortest amount of time possible. And so we're always looking for things that save us time, for things that make our our job shorter, etc. It was interesting. I I found an ad uh, for an exercise machine called a ROM 4-Minute Workout Cross Trainer. Now, this promises that you can get a full workout in just four minutes a day. Now, of course, it costs almost $15,000, but think of all the time that you can save. And so when we look at meditation, a lot of times, you know, that's kind of our goal is to do it as quickly as possible. But we can't meditate until we're willing to put the time into it. Now, as we look at this psalm, we saw what the righteous person was like. And then in verse 3, we see what the righteous life promises to us. Verse 3 says, That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Now, as we look at this, we can see several advantages to being righteous. We are like a tree, it says, planted by streams of water. We are fruitful. We are effective. The tree yields its fruit in season. That is, it produces something of value, produces something important. And that is true of the righteous life. Now, the fruit is in its season. It's at the appropriate time. Uh, We can be assured that 
We will produce fruit if we are living righteous lives. Galatians 6, 9, Paul writes, Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Now, we also see that we are like a tree in that we have health and vitality. It says, a tree whose leaf does not wither. You know, righteousness provides health, a condition of spiritual fitness. Disease is a disorder. You know, it's a disorder of structure or function. When things aren't going right, they aren't working as they should be. So disease really is the abnormal condition, a deviation from what something would normally be doing. In our world today, there are many who feel this dis-ease, the sense that their lives aren't working right. You know, and we see multiple symptoms of this. Fear and anxiety, anger, guilt, shame, irritability, uh, addictive behaviors, apathy, hopelessness, depression, loneliness. All of these things come about because our lives do not have the spiritual health that we are promised if we pursue righteousness instead of wickedness. Now, we are also told that like a tree planted by the streams of water, whatever we do will prosper. We will be successful, we'll flourish, we'll thrive. And so the righteous prosper in whatever they do. And I don't believe this is just limited to spiritual prosperity. This applies to all of our lives. You know, when we live righteously, it produces results in everything that we do. But there is an important uh, caveat to this, something we have to keep in mind. The prosperity of the righteous is to be used to benefit others. Ephesians 4.28 says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Our prosperity is not meant to enrich ourselves. Uh, John Wesley began as a, a professor at Oxford University. And he earned 30 pounds a year, 30 English pounds. And that was a, a decent income for a person of his time. He found out that his expenses required 28 pounds per year. And so he gave away the additional two pounds. Now, what makes John Wesley so unique is as he prospered, he did not keep the excess for himself. As his income rose throughout his life, and eventually it, it rose to over 1,400 pounds per year, he continued to live off the same 28 pounds and give the rest of it away. He had prospered, but he used that prosperity to benefit others rather than himself. Now, as we look at this psalm, we see the way of the righteous described in the first part of the psalm, but then we see the way of the wicked described in verses 4 and 5. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. So we are told the wicked are like chaff. That is, they are worthless. There's no value. Now, this may not make much sense to us today because we're not used to the idea of growing wheat or other grains.
but uh, it would have been familiar with those who heard this. Uh, the chaff is a dry, scaly, protective covering that covers the, the grain, whether it's a grain of, of wheat or barley or other things. Now, it's indigestible, so you would thresh the wheat. You would need to beat it to separate this dry covering from the grain of wheat itself. And when you had beaten it to separate it, you would toss it into the air. And the chaff was very light, more like dust. The wind would blow it away, and the heavier grain then would fall to the ground. And so we see from this that the chaff is something that's impermanent, that's temporary, it's worthless. And this is really the opposite message to what our society uh, gives to us. Our society often glorifies the idea that we can get ahead through wickedness. You know, we see all of these reality shows where people are encouraged to lie to each other, to cheat and to steal, to manipulate. All of this with the idea the one who does this the best is the one who wins the prize and comes out ahead. But the lesson from Scripture is that nothing of value is obtained through wickedness. You know, it's a, a fool's gold, so to speak. Wickedness is worthless because everything of value in our world comes from God Himself. Uh, I like the verse from James 1.17 where it says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. So God created us to find life in Him and only in Him. The wicked, it says, are like the chaff. They are insubstantial. They are temporary, blown away by the wind. And so you can think, you know, what are you going to invest your life in? The wicked may invest their life in a variety of things, but all of those things are temporary. You know, everything in this world that we think is so important will eventually pass away. Ourselves, we ourselves as living souls, are the only thing that's permanent. And so wickedness promises great rewards, but it can only provide imaginary results. It can't give us anything of real permanence. Uh, a lot of times, wickedness has the appearance of value. In reality, though, Scripture says it will not stand in the judgment. Verse 5 says, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. In other words, when the time of judgment comes, we will recognize how worthless the wickedness of this world is. There's a quote from Gertrude Stein where she writes, there is no there there. And it sounds like a tongue twister. But the idea is a lot of things that we think are there, as we look at them, as we examine them, we see there is no there there. There is nothing there. And so we can look around at this world and say, well, that's not what I see. Everywhere I look, it looks like the wicked are prospering. You know, they're doing what they want. They're uh, achieving the success. They're getting the jobs. They have the money. They have the toys. They have all of these things. The righteous, meanwhile, are suffering. But the psalmist assures us that this will not last. This is only temporary. The wicked will not stand in the judgment. I'm reminded of, of uh, Bernie Madoff. 
you may remember this story from several years ago, but he ran an investment program. And it, come, it came to be that people found out it wasn't really a legitimate investment program at all. It was a Ponzi scheme. It turned out to be a fraud. And thousands of people who believed they had millions of dollars invested with Bernie Madoff found out that their investments were worthless. It was just something written down on paper, but there was no there there. And a lot of times when we look at the wickedness around us, you know, it seems to be that there's something there. But when we view it in light of eternity, we can see there is no there there. So as we go throughout this next week, I want us to seriously consider uh, what the psalmist has showed us here. And the idea that uh, in this life, there is a big difference between the wicked and the righteous. And to, to realize what these differences are. Now, the psalmist presents us with an either-or situation. He says there are two types of people, righteousness and wickedness. And you're either a righteous person or a wicked person. Now, we don't like to, to recognize that. We're often willing to admit, okay, I, I'm not that righteous. But we don't want to say, I'm wicked. We want to think of ourselves as kind of in the middle. Not really righteous, but not really wicked. But the reality, according to the psalmist, is you are either on the path of righteousness or the path of wickedness. There is no middle way. And so my challenge to you, as you go through this next week, squarely face that reality in your life. Which path are you on? Are you on the path of righteousness? Are you on the path of wickedness? And do you realize the results of the path that you've chosen? And I want to end with that, that quote that I made earlier uh, from Nevada Barr, where she writes, So I sinned and I sinned. And I wondered why my life wasn't turning out the way I wanted it to. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this day. We thank you for this word that we've learned this morning, for your message to us. And we ask you that you would give us the wisdom, Lord, to recognize uh, what is wicked from what is righteous and to choose, Lord, the righteous, to choose you, to obey you, in your name, amen.